Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I'm always interested in the other guys. That's kind of my attitude to history, like in the podcast as well, is just, you know, well, what were the other people doing? And, you know, there's this guy up on the platform hanging Ned Kelly and we know virtually nothing about him. And then, you know, sort of opening up his life, everything sort of spilled out about the rest of Melbourne at this time. And wow, what a story. Our guest for this episode is Michael Adams, host of the fascinating podcast Forgotten Australia. 
Michael is a master of deep diving into the archives to tell incredible stories most people have never heard of, many of them about crime and society. From historic news articles, even the smallest of briefs, and the mere mention of a name, Michael brings old stories, scandals, oddities, and the lives of intriguing people back to life. Michael's also an author, and his latest book, Hanging Ned Kelly, looks at Australia's most famous anti-hero from a new perspective, that of the man who ended Kelly's life, hangman Elijah Upjohn, and the capital punishment history of Australia. I bet you thought this would be an episode about Ned Kelly, right? Well, we do talk about Kelly, but we think you'll be as surprised as Michelle and I were about the tentacles of this conversation. Hangmen, miscarriages of justice, tragedy and violence. This is definitely history you didn't learn in school. The idea of a hangman is this, you know, hooded figure who just sort of appears on the scaffold, does his job really well, really quickly, and then vanishes again. I'd always assumed that they were probably, you know, law enforcement types or similar. And you kind of wonder why they didn't use people like that, because soldiers, police, magistrates, sheriffs, they're the people you can rely on in every other way in terms of law enforcement, except in this instance, because, you know, these were Christian people. They thought they were doing an execution was, you know, for God, Queen and Colony, but I guess they were also, you know, didn't want to stain their souls with killing somebody. You know, what if the guy was innocent? Is that Does that then make you a murderer? So that's why they, you know, put the job out to other people. And typically, almost exclusively at this period in Melbourne, they were former convicts, criminals uh, with long histories. Almost all of them had been transported Tasmanian convicts. They'd come across Bass Strait when, when their terms had expired. And most of them had just continued living lives of crime, drinking heavily, getting into jail, and that put them in the position to be the hangman. The exception was Elijah Upjohn, who was the hangman for Ned Kelly. Now, he actually, again, was a Tasmanian convict. At the age of 11 in England, in 1834, he was caught stealing a pair of trousers that he then supposedly tried to sell for a bob. He was given three months in jail, that would have been an adult jail, and two sets of lashes. He's 11. He stood four foot 10. Then over the next you know, couple of years, he had a, a couple of more minor offences and that got him transported to Tasmania for seven years, just like his father. In Tasmania, as a, as a you know, 17, 18-year-old convict, he was again flogged for minor infractions, got sentence extensions, rations denied, all that kind of stuff that was fairly typical for convicts. But after his term expired, he went to Victoria around the start of the gold rush and he actually genuinely tried to make a go of it. He set up a business as a carter and labourer in Geelong. He married, he had children. He did a lot to sort of make himself respectable when you know, other Victorian hangmen had just, you know, gone from crime to crime, jail term to jail term, which kind of makes his story quite, quite tragic. It's interesting too that he didn't pan for gold. So he wasn't gambling when he went to the gold fields. Do you know what I mean? He actually tried to start a business working around the gamblers is what I would call them, the people trying to strike it rich with gold. Exactly. Like Geelong was, you know, the closest town to the goldfield. So it was booming as a town. So a lot of people in Victoria, they might have come for the actual gold, but, you know, if they were actually going to make any money out of anything, it was typically in some sort of service industry or something associated with expansion. And that's what Elijah Upjohn did. 1858, he moved to Ballarat to the heart of things. And Ballarat was then, you know, 
booming. I think the population topped out at about 60,000 around 1859. All of these dudes and dudettes are digging the, the golden nuggets out of the ground, but they're all putting brown nuggets back in. And that stuff's got to go somewhere. And there's no sanitation system. So Elijah was a nightman. He, you know, he was the guy you'd pay to come and empty your cesspool in the backyard. Now, you can imagine how few people would want to do that job or even hang out with someone who did that job. It was essential work. You know, if you didn't um, empty these cesspools, it stank for one. When it was really hot, it super stank. When there was a flood, they all overflowed and, and there was shit everywhere through the streets. So the authorities, the Ballarat councils, would not actually compel people to empty their cesspools. And when Elijah started, he actually was in this constant battle with the councils saying, you know, you've got to actually, here's a list of people whose cesspools are overflowing. Why don't you compel them to empty them? And the council came back and said, well, if we do that, it's like we're giving you business. We can't be seen to favour you. So, you know, he was in this constant, con you know, a real bureaucratic battle with council, which, you know, so many people can relate to even to this day. But this was his livelihood. And, you know, they kind of, you know, defamed him in the press, said, you know, he overcharged, all of this sort of stuff. In the 1860s, he had, you know, by this stage, four surviving children. He is, you know, in this kind of running battle with council. He starts working areas where he's not licensed. He gets caught, he gets fined. He uh, progressively does it more often. The fines get bigger. He gets some jail terms. A couple of his kids die. Just after his second son died, he's found in a toy shop in Ballarat smashing the place up. Now, I'm assuming he was drunken and maybe grieving. The woman didn't actually follow through in court, so we don't know exactly what his reasons were. But, you know, by the end of the 1860s, start of the 1870s, he'd gotten to the point where, you know, he'd commit some offence, the magistrate would say, you know, you're going to be fined three pounds or do three months, and he'd go, well, I'll take the time. So whether he could actually uh, pay the fines or whether he just was, you know, ornery and was like, well, buggy you, I'm just going to do the time, uh, I'm not sure. But, you know, in 1871, he got out of prison. He'd been in for six months. And after that, as far as the record stands, he was, you know, living straight and narrow for the next decade. He, you know, uh, quit the nightman business and actually became a laundryman. So he'd use his cart that he, I guess, that he'd been using to collect night soil, gave it a very good wash, and then was actually co collecting washing around Ballarat, which he'd bring home, and his wife would actually do the mangling, and then he'd take it back to the customers. You know, and one of the uh, Ballarat Post reporter said he was a fairly common sight in town, you know, sitting on the handle of his cart, smoking his pipe with a contemplative air, you know, as he stood out, you know, stared out at the town. So he was quite the character. And in this period as well, he also became a quack doctor. <laughs> so... He's, you know, he's promoting E. Upjohn's cures and it's like a, a, a sheet with a dozen testimonials from people who've been saved oh. from like, from breast cancer, wow. from tuberculosis, from Jesus. blindness, all of this stuff, you know. So it was like in the, like, you know, in the American movies, um, they call them snake oil yeah. salesmen. It's that kind of thing. Exactly. So if, you know, if you're in a bad way in Ballarat, you could, you know, and you didn't have much education, you might rock up to old Eliza and say, give me, one of your cures, I assume they were a mixture of herbs and stuff, probably didn't do you any harm, but I'm pretty sure they didn't cure cancer. In April of 1880, he was caught in the chicken coop of a Bank of Ballarat manager. So this manager had a chicken coop out the back. 
him and his son are sitting inside one evening. They hear some clucking from the darkness. So the son runs out and is like, who's there? And this voice comes out of the clucking darkness, get back or I'll stick you. And the son's pretty brave. So he, you know, runs ahead and his figure darts out of the chicken coop and dashes off into the Ballarat night. The son chases him down and catches him. And the son's quite small. Elijah stood about six feet tall. So one of the papers said, you know, there was the interesting spectacle of this, you know, fairly diminutive character tackling this big guy. And it turns out it's Elijah Upjohn and he's feigning drunkenness. And, you know, he's supposedly gotten drunk and decided he's going to steal a few chickens. He's actually not drunk. He's pretending. And he's actually got 13 chooks dead in the chook house laid out. He was, you know, about to scrag a few more uh, when he got caught. And he used to do the actual laundry for this bank, so he knew the layout. It was a it was a planned chicken heist. Let me tell you. <gasps> you'd think it's a even so. You'd think it's a fairly minor offence. Um, as a comparison, so the hangman at the time in Melbourne was a dude named Michael Gately, who was an absolute beast. He had you know he was literally chased through the streets of Melbourne by hundreds of larrikins. They hated him. He was constantly you know up for assault, drunkenness. You know, in the first 12 months of him being hangman in 1873, he did nine months in prison on various charges. So that gives you an indication of what sort of fellow he was. But Michael Gately in 1880, when Elijah did his chicken robbery, was in jail for six months. The latest offence had been him trying to choke his wife. So he got six months for that. Elijah got 12 months for his chicken theft. So it gives you an idea of how the society viewed crimes against women versus crimes against property. Well, you know what? You wouldn't get much longer these days for trying to choke your wife, to be honest. Yeah. That is unfortunately possibly true. Uh, This is one thing I found in in this research, which was really awful. Him choking his wife, getting six months, was probably on account of him being such a reprehensible hensible character with such a long record. The average husband doing that might get fined a couple of shillings, if anything, and it was a real issue and it, it just continued on. Can I ask, if you're the hangman and then you go to jail, if someone needs to be hanged, are you still the hangman? Do they come and get you from your cell to come up and hang the other bloke? Let's think of it as working from home. Yeah. Yes. You're right there. They're going to hang someone in Melbourne jail. You're in Melbourne jail. Excellent. And, you know, they'd still pay you as well. Yeah. So. Getting uh, arrested, convicted was absolutely no barrier to continuing your work and it was actually good for the authorities because they knew where you were and they knew you'd be sober. So anyway, Elijah got 12 months. He's in jail and Gately gets out and his wife has taken off to Sydney. So Michael Gately clears out of Melbourne looking for his wife. So there's position vacant for Hangman at exactly the same time that Ned Kelly's caught at Glen Rowan and someone needs, someone needs hanging. The timing is extraordinary. Like Gately took off on like I think the 14th of June or thereabouts and Ned Kelly was caught two weeks later and Elijah put his hand up or was asked to put his hand up and they had a hangman and he was sent down to Melbourne jail on the 1st of July. Obviously, it'd, it'd be months before Kelly recovered and was, you know, if he was convicted, it was going to go to the gallows. So in that time, uh, Elijah made money doing what, the other job that hangmen did, which was flogging people. Why do you think that job appealed to him? Because honestly, when I, I was having a bit of a look at his rap sheet this morning and I was having a bit of a laugh about it because I was thinking, what a reprobate. Like it reads pretty badly. But then as you've been talking and you've put a lot of context around it, I felt was feeling really guilty because I was thinking, well, actually, he's a really hard worker. He's a self-starter. 
clearly his early life was hideous. He's in jail at 11, in adult jail, and God only knows what happened to him in there. And then he's taking on the jobs that no one else will do, but not. But they're not brutal jobs at all. They're dirty jobs and they're jobs that need doing. You know, like he's he seems to be a pretty good person and then he's, he's only violent crime and I wouldn't even – it's not even that violent. Like it's a property crime, let's say, and – and I agree with you, it's probably he's mourning the death of a child. What makes him in 1880 decide to take on this most hated job? It feels like it's not been part of his sort of personality up until that point. I agree. I think what he did when he was in court on the chicken conviction, he actually blamed his wife and children for all of his problems. So this might have been a sort of a desperate uh, manoeuvre, hoping to get some sort of leniency, but I also think it probably rubbed his family up the wrong way. It was certainly in the press that she was a fine, upstanding woman and what he'd done in court was shameful. So I think maybe he might have been not able to go home after he was going to be released. I mean, he was in for 12 months. He actually put his hand up to be hangman two months into that sentence. I have a feeling it was probably desperation. He was 58. You know, if you're a hangman, at least you're earning money while you're inside. You'll come out with some money. So, you know, in these floggings, they'd get a pound per flogging uh, and five pounds per hanging. So, you know, by the time Elijah was released, he would have a kitty to spend. Uh, otherwise, if he didn't do this, and, and you know, as a, as a hangman, you probably were entitled to other perks as well. At that age, he couldn't have come out and continued with that very physical labour that he'd always done, I suppose. Shit carding. That's right. Yeah, yeah carding laundry shit carding. and yeah. carding shit. And, but, yeah, life would only get harder for a 58-year-old man, former convict, I reckon. You hey. wouldn't live that long in that time, no. yeah, unless you were rich and you had means of good yeah. food and health Aww. and stuff. Mm. Poor Elijah. It's surprising these hangmen actually didn't do too bad in terms of longevity. Most of them lived into their 60s and I think the reason was is they spent so much time in jail away from the booze. Like they'd be on absolute yeah. benders when they were out, but then they'd be put back inside for, you know, a month or two and they'd dry out. So they kind of actually, the, this vicious cycle kind of actually preserved them for, for longer than they might otherwise have lived. But with Elijah, I think, you know, who knows what pressure was brought to bear on him as well. Like, you know, hey, if you do this, you'd be eligible for admission, remissions, you'll get, you know, better treatment and so on. In any event, he did put his hand up for it. So when the time came on the 11th of November, 1880, he was going to be the one to to hang Ned Kelly. And to me, it's extraordinary that you'd give a job like that to this guy who's never done it before. The new guy. New guy, exactly. What a way to make your debut. For context, in, in the previous sort of five years, Michael Gately had botched hangings like you wouldn't believe. Like people would strangle for up to 20 minutes. One dude hit the actual... Uh, side of the uh, trapdoor as he went through and his hood filled with blood as he strangled. And that was like only a few years before Ned Kelly. So you can imagine what the uh, sort of response would have been in Melbourne and perhaps all around Australia if Ned Kelly had gone out that way. Uh, so mm. why they were willing to risk this new guy is, you know, really a, a question I, I, I have. I, I'm not sure of the answer. I think the uh, there was this sort of real lax kind of attitude to the hangmen. They sort of, you know, as the hangings became less frequent in the 70s and 80s, 
they didn't really pay much attention to it. Like I went through sheriff documents in the public records office of Victoria hoping to find some sort of smoking gun, like, you know, a sheriff writing, ha, 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 we'll use this bungalow and make them really suffer. And the truth was that the sheriff's mentions of the hangman in the, in the available documents, so this was in the 1850s, 1860s, were really sparse. They they didn't just didn't sort of factor into it too much. They were, they were really down the totem pole of priorities. They did actually have by this stage, a memo from London setting out exactly how a hanging should take place. It had been issued in July of 1880, so only five months before Ned was due to hang. I assume it reached Melbourne. I don't know for sure, but uh, it should have reached Melbourne in time. Regardless, whether it did or whether it didn't, they didn't actually follow these best practices. You know, one of them was to find a reliable hangman a good of good character and also ensure that he knew what he was doing. Governor John Castillo would later supposedly say that Upjohn hadn't known what he was doing and had to be helped through every step of the process except pulling the bolt. It was kind of, I think, more luck than anything else that you know, Ned, in most accounts, died pretty quickly. But, you know, the Herald, which was the first draft of history that afternoon, which gave us such his life as Ned's last words, also claimed that it was four minutes before his legs started, stopped going up and down. Other reports said he, you know, he stopped twitching pretty much within you know, a few seconds. So the truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, from my research, I think that very few necks were actually broken, and that was when people really did die instantly. Often they were sort of quote unquote dislocated. Often people strangled. In such an instance, you know, you most people would be unconscious within sort of you know ten to twenty seconds, but some would have actually taken a lot longer to lose consciousness and lose feeling. So it was really barbaric. I mean, you know, I think the average is in, in modern studies they reckon is 10 seconds, but these are studies of autoerotic asphyxiation that people have videoed and it's actually gone wrong. So that's the closest we have to actually knowing how long it takes. But, you know, 10 seconds even so is, you know, that's as long as it takes to sing happy birthday to you, as we know from hand washing during COVID. So, you know, you think about strangling at the end of a rope even for 10 seconds, it would feel like an eternity. So a really, a really horrible, horrible way to go. Absolutely. But in the States, they're still using methods that sometimes don't work, you know, still... Out of date drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Out of yeah. date. It's just abominable. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, they took hangings private in Victoria and then made them, you know, super private later on. But even when they were private, like, you know, hangings were public from 1842 to 1855 in Victoria, but then they were private. So they were inside the jail, but the sheriff would still let, you know, up to 100 or even 150 people in. So it wasn't private in the sense of, you know, just you, the sheriff and the the governor of the jail and the hangman. There were these crowds and they'd follow people around, follow them, you know, follow the, the condemned man to the gallows and sort of, you know, talk to him and, and you know, God knows what else. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank God, thank the goddess that capital punishment is no longer on the books in Australia and has been, you know, there's actually a a Commonwealth uh, law that says it can never be reintroduced. Well, I think a lot of our listeners, I know a lot of people, a lot of Australians are shocked to the back teeth when they realise and when they learn how recently it was outlawed. Can you remind us about the last person who was hanged in Australia, please? Well, that was Ronald Ryan in 1967. William O'Mealy was flogged in, I think, 1958. Jean Lee was the last woman hanged. That was 1951. She was like, you know, had to be, she was basically propped in a chair, unconscious with terror as these, you know, two hangmen wearing like, you know, welders, goggles and hats, you know, they wouldn't even face the, the, the journalist present. They faced away from them. So it was just a ghastly business. And, you know, when you see nooses on the street of Melbourne during COVID, you know, anti-COVID lockdown measures. It's like, do you people have any clue what you're actually, you know, suggesting is, happens? It's like, but we've kind of swept capital punishment under the rug to a large extent. You know, many people know Ronald Ryan's story. Many people know Ned Kelly's story, but I don't think many people would be able to name anyone else who was hanged. And there was something like 1,650 that we know of in Australia. There might have, may have been a few more, but, you know, it's an awful lot of people over, you know, a period of 150-odd years. I mean, like, as I say in the book, we'll be well into the 22nd century in Australia before we've been longer without hanging than we were with it. And we know statistically that a number of them will have been innocent. Oh, I, I can't speak to the innocence of anyone in particular conclusively in the book, but certainly there's plenty of evidence that says that these convictions were unsafe. You know, people were clearly mentally ill. It had been manslaughter rather than murder. The science, so-called scientific evidence was, you know, wouldn't pass kindergarten muster today. I mean, they were doing the best that they could at the time. Uh, so you don't want to judge too harshly, but a- actually at the time, a lot of people were concerned about these people going to the gallows because the convictions were so sort of shonky. And in some cases, you do actually find, you know, there was a, a case uh, of two Aboriginal men who were hanged in 1847, and a guy wrote about it, a guy who'd been part of the party that caught them and knew the circumstances, knew the guy they'd supposedly killed, wrote a memoir some 40 years, 50 years later, in which he made it clear that, you know, if they had actually were guilty of it, they were acting in self-defence. The guy that they had supposedly speared had carried a pistol in his belt and had said, I'm going to shoot anyone who steals my sheep. And then that morning had accused them of stealing sheep. So they were well within their rights to fear for their lives. Classic self-defence. This guy wasn't called to testify at the trial. There was another case where two homosexual men had a murder-suicide pact in the Treasury Gardens. They pointed pistols at each other. One of the pistols didn't fire. Oh, no. So one bloke shot his lover dead 
and then he was actually tried for murder and he was hanged. And, you know, the circumstances of that, the actual judge during the court trial said, if you had any decency, you would have picked up the gun, reloaded it and blown your brains out oh. on the spot. I mean, you know, just there's just so many cases like this where the circumstances were so sort of extenuating that today the person would be either acquitted or convicted of a lesser charge. Uh, certainly they wouldn't face the death penalty. How many people were there for Ned's? The official list of witnesses is 27, but reports would say there was about 50 in total. One of them was Alfred Deakin, who'd become our Prime Minister later on. Uh, He was then a reporter uh, and a spiritualist. So spiritualists, just before Ned was hanged, spiritualists had uh, in Melbourne got together and tried to create a psychic net around Melbourne jail so they could catch Ned's spirit before the bad spirits got him and took him off. And uh, they later reported um, that, yes, they succeeded in snatching him away to the good place where the first person he met was you know, Constable Lonigan and everything was forgiven. And then, of course, you know, Ned said in court, you know, to Judge Redmond Barry, you know, where I go, I'll see you there kind of thing. And Barry died 12 days later. So the spiritualists were wondering, well, what's this reunion going to be like in spirit land? <laughs> they didn't actually come through with a report, though a year later a spiritualist did say that Ned was in a very good sphere of the of the next world, but they didn't report on the judge. So, you know, maybe he didn't go to the same place. It was a very strange time. Did the spiritualists happen to predict the loss of Ned's head? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't, no. <laughs> did, um, did Upjohn, did he wear the hood and everything? What was the practice? Did they no. wear the hoods did he not? to cover? Oh. No, they didn't wear hoods. So these oh. hangmen, when they were in doing it in public, you know, in some of these executions in the 1840s, there was, you know, one report said there were 7,000 people. Uh, and at the time, that would have been about one in three people living in the Port Phillip district. You know, a substan- probably more than half of the people living in Melbourne at the time. The hangman was up there on the platform. His face was bare. Everyone knew what he looked like. And then, you know, you'd see him the next day walking down Burke Street, <gasps> drunk out off his head. So the actual anonymity didn't come into it until after Up John with a hangman who then wore a fake beard and a fake and a, a fake beard and a wig and uh, had a pseudonym. But even he ended up getting outed and he killed himself because of it before a hanging was to take place. For decades, the newspaper columnists were like, surely we can do better than this. They didn't replace them. You know, there wouldn't be a hanging for a few months or a year or so. The funeral would die down. Then the hangman would come back, botch another job, get drunk, etc. There'd be the call for him to be replaced yet again and it would be ignored and it just went on and on. So, like, you know, William Bamford was the hangman from 1857 to 1873 and he hanged 66 people, including one woman, did the floggings as well, increasingly as larrikins became a thing. But, you know, he lived in a, you know, stone piles uh, by the Yarra in a wasteland, drank himself insensate with his cronies continually. He was a pimp and procurer. There were constant calls for him to be replaced and they just wouldn't replace him, didn't replace him. And he kind of, by the end of it, became this kind of lovable character of Melbourne. You know, the great author and journalist Marcus Clark wrote a six-part piece in 1871, I think it was, might have been 1867, about Lower Bohemia, the underworld of, of Victoria. And it actually kind of teased 
Bamford at the start, but it concluded with Marcus Clark finding him in the in the stones, in the stone piles, and chatting with his chap. And you know, Marcus Clark thought it was just you know incredible that this supposedly valuable functionary of society was reduced to this hunted creature of the wastelands. What do you mean by would larrikins became a thing? What does that mean? The word larrikin didn't exist, as far as I'm aware, until 1867 in the popular sort of currency. So the earliest mention I found was in a newspaper in Sydney where this convict had kind of written his autobiography and quoted some guy calling him a bit of a larrikin. <laughs> and the word's possible meaning was leery kin, which meant someone who was a knowing one. By 1870, it was in use in Victoria. And at that point, there was a story that went around that there'd been a magistrate with an Irish name or an Irish copper who'd said someone was larking about and it became larrikin. So there's a real kind of debate about the origin of it. In any event, before that, there'd been boys and big boys. And, they were, and so this phenomenon of thuggery was called the boy nuisance and the big boy nuisance. So these were kids on the street. They were like, you know, colonial born. They were the sons and daughters of the people who'd come to work the gold fields or emigrated to Australia in general. They were, you know, colonials. And um, they were, you know, on the streets, drinking, smoking, fighting, fussing, the other F word, going for it, you know, and there was the sort of typical kind of, you know, newspaper sensation you'd still find with youth behaving badly today. Yes. The children of immigrants, that generation of there children you go. of immigrants, absolutely, that we always get scared yeah. of and they, they're gangs. The youth's gone wild. Yeah, yeah. Once they dubbed them larrikins, you know, they'd, for six years or so they'd been reporting on the boy and big boy nuisance and saying what should be done, we need to flog these characters to sort them out. Once the word larrikin was attached to them, then, you know, the papers were just full of it nonstop and there was this increasing mm. call for them to be flogged and that was what happened. Like Redmond Barry in 1867, this kid, 15-year-old kid, went into a shop in Burke Street, bought a revolver and headed out to become a bushranger. He was absolutely hopeless. He held up two people. They said, no, thanks, we haven't got any money. And then the, the third guy, there was a bit of a tussle and this kid shot himself through the lip. He was lucky not to blow his head off. Redmond Barry had him in court and said, you know, well, young man, this is almost comical, but I think I can teach you a lesson. So he gave him five years, but he also dug out an, a statute that allowed people under the age of 16 to be flogged. So he ordered this kid to two sets of 25 lashes each, and the first 25 were delivered by Bamford in Melbourne jail. Horrific. Was, his screams could be heard, you know, throughout the prison complex and out into the streets. And three months later, when he was due for his second set, they actually examined him and the kid was too mentally ill to to actually get the second set of lashes. Oh so, But, you know, he did the rest of his time. But, you know, after that, uh, larrikinism and minor crimes became increasingly punishable by the lash. It was a double-edged sword, this thing, because, you know, it was supposedly such a horrible punishment, you'd never want to undergo it again thing with hanging someone is no matter how badly you, you do the hanging, they're not coming back. Yeah. A larrikin who st stands up to a flogging is likely going to be out on the streets 12 months later and he might run into you on Burke Street. So, And also, like, you know, you can die game on the gallows but it doesn't do you much good because you're dead. But you can stand up to a flogging gamely and become a legend. So there's this amazing story of this, you know, larrikin who's, you know, I looked at his rap sheet, he's got five or six years' worth of, you know, drunkenness, uh, assaults, 
rubbery, all sorts of stuff. And he comes out to the triangle and Bamford lays into him and he's calling out, come on, give it to me. You know, what you're doing wouldn't hurt a mosquito, all of this sort of stuff. And the, the newspapers are actually describing him, you know, as with his rippling muscles on his back and his tattoos and all the rest of it, just taking this punishment. And you can imagine larrikins and others around the colony reading this and going, I want to be like that guy. What yeah. a champion. And, you know, Ned Kelly at this point was 15 years old. So, you know, someone who could stand up to that sort of punishment was, you know, a bit of an anti-hero. Yeah. So while the magistrates thought flogging people was great, it didn't have any effect. It probably had the opposite effect in terms of, you know, lionising these guys. What about when you're executing, when you're the person who hangs Ned Kelly, it feels to me like, you know, that that would be like being the person who's hung Carl Williams or hung Jason Moran. I mean, he's from a gang. I would be terrified if everybody knew that I was the guy who yeah. carried out that sentence. I still can't believe they didn't have hoods on. That's what I mean. The anonymity thing. So was he fearful for his life um, after carrying out this hanging? I reckon if he'd been turned loose the next day, he would have been killed. Mm. So Michael Michael Gately would hang someone and then be out on the street the next day drinking his five pounds, get bashed, bash, and be back in jail under under sentence very quickly. Like I said, Gately was literally hunted through the streets by hundreds of larrikins at a time. There were like these mass battles in the centre of Melbourne around Gately. So if, if Up John had been turned loose the next day, I don't think he would have survived. He was lucky in a sense that he still had four or five months of his sentence to serve. There was a story that after hanging Ned Kelly, someone punched him in the face and said, that's for hanging Ned Kelly. That story didn't actually come out until decades later. So I, I don't know if that's literally true, but I imagine that if anyone had had a chance to have a go at him, they would have. By the time he was actually released, sort of, I think it was March of 1881, it had been four months and it had died down some. So he wasn't that I know of specifically targeted for, for Ned Kelly, but he, like Gately before him, ended up being the target of violence. Like he was assaulted on numerous occasions. Uh, who knows what, what words were actually exchanged in these instances. But, you know, we've talked already about the sort of um, fines and sentences people got. In one of these instances, two blokes beat him up and they were fined five shillings each, which was about the amount you'd be fined for your first drunkenness offence. So in terms of a green light to uh, attack hangmen, it's, it seems that magistrates kind of gave it. And, you know, progressively, Upjohn would be more and more persecuted on the streets to the point where he actually had to be removed from the colony because there was a larrikin plot to kill him. Oh. Being a hangman was worse than being a murderer. People, they were fascinated by them but also despise them. So you couldn't get a job if you'd been a hangman. No one would hire you. On very rare occasions would they actually give you accommodation. Many places would refuse your service. So you really were an outcast. I mean, and that's, I think, why so many hangmen would, you know, take their earnings to the pub and just shout drinks for everybody because that's the only way they could get, you know, people to hang out with them was to to buy them drinks. Um, you know, and five pounds at the time would probably buy you about 400 pints of colonial lager. So, you know... You could really go on quite the tear after a, after a job, and of course, you know, drinking a huge amount was obviously you know helpful in quelling those mental demons and emotional demons. I mean, I, I feel that these guys would have just been incredibly traumatized by their own yeah. experiences anyway, but then further by this you know brutality that they were called on to execute continually. His life really seems to have taken a turn, you know, from Ballarat for whatever reason. Maybe it was the death of his 
children or or something because it really seems like he's been you know working hard he's taking care of his family and then it's quite a sharp turn and I'd say into alcoholism yeah as well around that time isn't it because then from the time that he's in prison and takes on the job of the hangman from then all of a sudden these offenses well, there's really no, there's not no offences sort of in the lead up to that, and then all of a sudden it's all like he's exposing himself, he's um, m- making himself obnoxious to the residents of Coburg. What I'm assuming that's <laughs> like abusive in the street, maybe I don't know. I think so. Yeah, he'd apparently ride the ride the omnibuses and be you know offensive to women and children. Yeah, um, and you know the exposure thing. I think it sounds like. To me, because they reduced the charge, it sounds to me like because exposure was actually punishable by flogging. Mm. So it sounds to me like he might have just gone to the toilet, sort of you know, outside the pub or something like that, uh, and course. been seen. What about there? There was a an editorial in the Age arguing that they should appoint a less outrageous hangman. <laughs> wow, that was that was that editorial had been written in various forms for the past the past thirty five years. And, you know, it just it just was a cycle that just continued and continued. It's like, you know, today with climate change, you know. Hey, look at this editorial from 1992 saying we should do this. Hey, look at this editorial yeah. from today saying exactly the same thing. So it was a cycle that just continued and they never sort of got it together. The newspapers had for decades had this love-to-hate relationship with these guys, you know, because they were funny to write about, but then they could also tut-tut and say, oh, this is outrageous, but, hey, you also did this. Hangman Gately, uh, when he was in jail, a journalist called Vagabond, great name, uh, that was his pseudonym, pretended to be a medical attendant for a month and worked and lived in Pentridge so he could write about it. And his very first encounter was with Gately and he had to pull one of his rotten teeth. So he did this and he wrote about it. And then he interviewed people about Gately, you know, or got got the, the lowdown, and they said that despite his, you know, long, long history of robbery and all the rest of it, uh, burglary and so forth, and I, I, I've looked at his files and this guy was rarely out of prison, they said that since he'd become the hangman, his behaviour and his attitude had gotten so much worse. So it really does seem that, you know, it was an instant ticket to trauma, yeah. an, instant tic- an instant ticket to, you know, drinking ever greater amounts of alcohol and so forth. But, like, you know, while Gately was extremely violent, like, you know, he'd bite people, he'd bash people and so on, Upjohn wasn't like that. He was, you know, no. there were no crimes of violence uh, sheeted home to him at all. So he was, you know, I think uh, a sad character who, you know, had had actually tried to to make a go of things and ended up here. And, you know, was also just sort of abandoned by, you know, authority uh, and left to his left to his own fate, which is, you know, increasingly terrible. By 1884, he was scheduled to do a hanging and supposedly had to be captured and brought to the jail and made sober and even then was still shaking and all the rest of it on the on the scaffold. And anyway, the hanging went ahead. But the sheriff was, you know, apparently outraged. The newspapers were outraged. I mean, I'm not sure why they were any more outraged about this than any of the other dozens of terrible botched hangings by drunken hangmen before. The thing was, was this was the first hanging that had happened in Melbourne since Ned Kelly. The other three or four had been in, like, country areas. So this was the first hanging to happen and supposedly be botched under the sheriff, Robert Reed, and he suspended up John. So he didn't fire him, but he announced he was suspended and they were looking at, you know, maybe replacing him. And Upjohn, much in the same way as up in Ballarat, didn't take it lying down. He went, he called the Herald and gave a, an interview and said, I wasn't drunk. 
I didn't botch anything. They botched stuff. I didn't have to be captured. They couldn't get them, their acts together. And he actually threw his superiors under the bus. This was the unforgivable offence. He had, you know, back in the day, back in the 1600s in England, the first hangman whose name was became synonymous with hangmen, Jack Ketch. So all of these hangmen we've been talking about were actually known by the nickname Jack Ketch. And Jack Ketch is a character in Punch and Judy because of this, you know, infamy. So Jack Ketch had also botched hangings like you wouldn't believe. We're talking like uh, hacking people when he's trying to behead them, etc. These guys are <gasps> oh. screaming and he's hacking away, hacking away, etc. But he didn't get fired for any of that. What he got fired for eventually was affronting a sheriff. And that's what Upjohn had done by going public with his denial and blaming his superiors. He'd actually affronted the system. So they fired him and replaced him. He had no pension. He had no income. No one would hire him. No one would give him lodgings. So he's just persecuted. He ends up hanging around the Salvation Army's offices by day for safety. And at night, he sleeps in shithouses. So he's now actually sleeping in the places he used to clean to try and stop him from being attacked by larrikins and killed. And how old is he by this stage? He must be nearly He's 70. in his early 60s, wow. yeah. early 60s by this oh, stage. God. So this is happening exactly at the time that a journalist called George Augustus Sala, who's a very famous author and journalist from London, is in Melbourne experiencing the joys of the city over a couple of months. And he writes about what a great place it is and he coins the phrase, marvellous Melbourne. But he, he's actually right there at the time that Upjohn is being hunted through the streets by larrikins and eventually Upjohn, I guess the authorities didn't want him to be murdered in the streets, so someone gave him enough money to go to Sydney to get out of the state. Oh, go and get murdered in Sydney. Well, he didn't last much longer, yeah. The report in the Herald was that he died in a tent at the back of Burke. He'd been up there, uh, why? isn't sure, but I'm presuming that he'd gotten work on the railway. The railway had just reached Burke at that time and there'd been a lot of navvies working on it and they'd been sleeping in tents at the back of Burke, which is where he was found. So even though he was old, he was a big, strong bloke. So I think that might have been what he was doing. It's probably the work he could get. The Sydney Morning Herald said that they thought there was a rumour he'd been poisoned, but it also said that no inquest would be held. So, like, you know, no one really cared. A sad end, but none of these guys tended to enjoy long and graceful retirements. The Upjohn family were really, really well known in for centuries in Shaftesbury in the UK, and two members of the family, distant relations to Elijah, went to uh, America in the 1830s and um, established one established himself as an architect who was hugely famous. The other guy uh, had a son who then founded a massive pharmaceutical empire, which only recently was like bought by uh, you know one of the other billion dollar companies. So there's Upjohns out there for sure. In Australia, another one of his sons died in 1882, early 1882. So he ended up with two living sons. One of the one of them died in uh, Western Australia in 1938. So there would still be descendants. I did see someone mention something on Twitter at some point about being a distant relation to Elijah. So there, there will be uh, people up there out, out there with, you know, the Upjohn name. What a journey just from that, you yeah. know, you read a name, there's a little bit of information and that's what I love about this kind of research yeah. that you do. Then look at all this, all these stories spin Amazing. off. It's fascinating. Yeah, pull at a thread and just keep pulling and almost – always what comes out of it is remarkable. I mean, obviously the book is quite big as it is, but I couldn't get all of the stories in there. So the Aboriginal men I told you about, 
Uh, I'm going to do a podcast episode that expands on that. The the homosexual men, uh, Marx and Feeney, also about them, and another guy called Weechurch, who is this tormented prisoner. And the thing is with the um, Marx and Feeney and Weechurch is that all of the original records are still in the public records office. So we're talking love letters between the two men. We're talking Weechurch's letters to his family, including like the envelopes that they were supposedly oh. going to be posted in, but clearly the authorities intercepted them. So hundreds of pages of original documents. Uh, it really gives you an insight into who these people were. Most Ned Kelly books, he gets like a sentence, maybe a paragraph, at the most a page. Uh, and they run through the generally the the same sort of stuff that was you know he's kind of a, he, he just makes a cameo it's almost like his life began and ended on that day and you know and then he kind of walks out of history again so I would kind of you know wanted to sort of bring him back and and examine him as a person and I kind of you know I just I felt compassion for him as I did the other hangmen um, they were sort of you know all trapped in this hideous system that doesn't sort of you know feature in the in the history books about Victoria or Australia. Thanks to our guest, Michael Adams. Michael's new book is Hanging Ned Kelly, and his podcast is Forgotten Australia. You can find out more about Michael at his website, michaeladamswrites.com. All details are in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio, hubaustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.